Thanks. Um, <clears throat> G'day, I'm Charles. It's great to have you with us. We're going to jump into that big passage. Uh, before we do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray, would you speak to us now? Uh, transform us by your spirit. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, culture shock before. Uh, the first time I experienced culture shock uh, was on a trip to Fiji, a short-term mission trip about 13 years ago. Uh, and so there's kind of some of the obvious things that cause some of the culture shock. There's the Fiji time. Everything kind of runs behind schedule. Uh, there's uh, the fact that all the men wore dresses called Sulus. Uh, or there's the um, this amazing four-part harmony in church as we sung together. Uh, but then there were the moments that were kind of a little less obvious, but perhaps more significant. Um, I remember walking into a family home that was the size of my bedroom at home. And I didn't have a huge bedroom. Um, or there's the different kinds of values they placed on things like family and their, vi- um, their village. And so all of that created a bit of culture shock um, over there in Fiji. Uh, but the thing we were less prepared for was actually the reverse culture shock um, of coming home. Uh, see, when we got home, church all of a sudden felt quite different. Um, and we missed that passionate four-part harmony that we had. Uh, for some people, that caused some kind of frustration with Australian culture coming home. Um, see, once you've lived and breathed a certain culture for a little while, you tend not to notice the things that make it distinctive anymore. Um, after a while, it becomes familiar, assumed, and your culture just becomes invisible to you. Uh, and then you visit a new culture and you see everything. Um, you see all the ways in which um, they're kind of unique and distinctive. You know, it's their food, clothes, cars, um, the language, the culture. But then when you get home, there's this brief moment when all of a sudden your own culture becomes unfamiliar. Um, and you see everything. Um, and you can see all of its um, wonderful strengths, but you can also see some of those flaws in your own culture. Uh, For a brief moment, you see your culture for what it is. Uh, I reckon this passage we're looking at today, I reckon it has the potential to create some culture shock for us, uh, or maybe reverse culture shock, when it comes to the gospel. Uh, See, we here at Grace City, along with many, many other churches around the world, we are all about the gospel. That is the thing uh, that drives us. It is why we exist. Um, What is the gospel? Uh, Very simply, it's the good news that Jesus died in our place for our sins and that he rose so that those who put their faith in him might share in the hope of the resurrection. Um, That's one way of explaining it. And where the gospel is new and unfamiliar, maybe when you're first exploring things or you first become a Christian, um, it's all uh, unfamiliar. And there's this kind of culture shock. And you see all the crazy, distinctive ways. You go, wow, what is this thing called grace, Christianity? Um, Maybe you think back to that time and you say, oh, that was the time when I was on fire uh, for the gospel. Uh, But then over the time, the gospel can become familiar, uh, ordinary. It can can start to become invisible, assumed. uh, And so we don't see its distinctives, its uniqueness, maybe as much as we once did. And so I reckon uh, the big thing that this passage shows us today is that the gospel is actually far more radical than we often think it is. Far more radical than we often think it is. Um, And I think it has the potential to create some culture shock for us. Uh, There's some surprising things in this passage, um, some interesting things. Uh, So today's going to be pretty straightforward. I just want to share with you three massive, bold, radical truths 
uh, about the gospel. Uh, Three truths. I won't give them to you now. I'll give them to you as we go. Uh, And we're going to do that very simply by working through this song that we just read. Uh, 2 Samuel 22. We're told, verse 1, it was written by David. It's his song. Uh, Now, uh, this passage also appears almost identically in Psalm 18. So if you go there, basically exactly the same thing. Uh, We've got the same song. We'll dip into chapter 23 just a tiny bit uh, at the end. Uh, But before we jump in, you might be wondering, why have we jumped ahead so much in the book of 2 Samuel? I mean, we just did chapter 18 last week. uh, So what's going on? Um, Well, the way the book works is the book, the story of the book essentially finishes at chapter 20. That's kind of where the story finishes. Uh, And I mean, we get another rebellion by some guy called Sheba. That's where the story ends. Uh, But then from chapters 21 to 24, we get five passages that form a conclusion to the book. They're like an epilogue that helps us make sense of everything we have read in the book so far. Uh, And the way it's structured is that um, these passages match up from the outside in. So five passages there. You can see the first and last, they match up. Then the next pair, and then right in the middle is this song that David sings. Uh, This structure's, if you want to know, it's called a chiasm. Uh, Kind of, well, uh, it's lots there in the Hebrew Bible. So over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to finish our series in 2 Samuel by working through this epilogue from the inside out. Uh, That's how we're going to do it. Uh, But as I said, I reckon this passage uh, today, I reckon it's got three massive, bold, radical truths for us. Uh, The first is that God is far more devoted to you than you'd ever believe. Far more devoted to you than you'd ever believe. Uh, To see that, we're going to jump in from the start of David's song, uh, verse 2. He starts with this wonderful description of God. The Lord is my rock. My fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. From violent people, you save me. Now, what do all these descriptions have in common? They all communicate the idea of safety and protection. Um, A rock is solid and stable. Um, A fortress, a refuge, a stronghold, they're where you go for safety and protection. Um, And notice that these aren't just abstract descriptions of God. He's not just a rock. Uh, David says that the Lord is his rock, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. And the reason David describes God like this is because there have been many times when he has felt um, vulnerable, exposed and weak. Um, You just think of him coming before um, Goliath. We think of the times when he's been outnumbered against the Philistines, the Ammonites. Um, Or think of the years that he spent on the run from Saul trying to kill him. Um, Or let alone being on the run from his own son, um, Absalom. And in all of these moments, David tells us that he he felt like he was drowning. Drowning. Um, Have a look, verses 5 and 6. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. 
when I was a kid, um, we used to go on holidays up to Hawk's Nest. Um, it's kind of a couple of hours north. Uh, we used to love going to the beach. We used to love swimming. Uh, but one day, my dad took me out the back um, where the big waves are. Uh, I think I was about seven at the time, so he was brave. Um, there was this one particular wave. I still remember it. I was in the wrong spot, wrong time. And I remember this wave. It threw me on the sand, um, churned me about. I didn't know which way was up. Um, every second, it felt like an hour, and lungs bursting. Um, I remember it uh, until finally my feet hit solid ground, and I emerged alive and with a fear of waves that lasted until I was a teenager. <laughs> and my dad, he felt terribly guilty. Um, but I wonder, what are those moments where you feel like you're drowning? Um, what churns you up? Um, what makes you feel exposed and vulnerable? Um, everyone has something that makes them feel like they're drowning. But what does God do when we feel like that? What is he like when we are like that? Uh, David tells us, and this is where things get interesting. Uh, David describes God like this. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. There's perhaps a few ways of summarizing all that imagery. Uh, maybe it's a warrior um, or a storm. Uh, I think one thing actually captures it better than anything else. A dragon. Dragon. Um, I wonder if you picked up the same thing, like smoke from the nostrils, um, fire from the mouth, shrouded in darkness, flying on the wings of the wind. Um, it's a dragon. <laughs> um, now, there are lots of dragons um, in various stories and movies. It's the Hungarian horntail from Harry Potter. Um, Aragon, um, there's Shenron, Dragon Ball Z. Anyone? <laughs> uh, there's Mushu from Milan. Uh, but when I think of dragons, there is one that comes to mind before any others. Smaug from Tolkien's story, The Hobbit. Uh, and in the story, Smaug is this huge dragon. Um, his lair is the lonely mountain. And above all, he loves gold. Gold. Uh, this is how Smaug describes himself to Bilbo Baggins. My armour is like tenfold shields. My teeth are swords. My claws are spears. The shock of my tail a thunderbolt. My wings a hurricane and my breath death. Doesn't sound too dissimilar from how David describes God. But it's one thing for a dragon to be lying in his lair and it's another thing entirely for him to come down in rage. Um, it's exactly what Smaug does, comes down to Lake Town. 
in The Hobbit. Uh, And just like Smaug comes down, so too does God emerge from the heavens in rage. Um, We read that the earth trembled because he was angry and he parted the heavens and came down. So let me ask you, when was the last time you pictured God like a dragon? Does that image form part of your understanding of who God is? Now, David's clearly using a metaphor, but it leaves us with the question, why would David describe God like this? Uh, Here's why. Because in the same way that Smaug treasured gold above all else, God treasured David above all else. Grace City, he treasures you. And when you cry out to him, he comes down like a fearsome dragon. God didn't come down to destroy David. He came down to rescue him. Have a look at verses 17 to 20. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. He treasured me. Um, I want you to picture Smaug coming down from the lonely mountain, fire brewing in his mouth. But instead of coming down to destroy Lake Town, I want you to imagine him reaching down and taking hold of Bilbo with all the tenderness of a father and carrying him home to safety. It's perhaps an imperfect picture, but I think it captures something of the fierce devotion that God has to his people. That was David's God, and that is your God too, every time you call out to him. Uh, He delights in you. He's far more devoted to you than you'd ever believe. Um, He's like a fearsome dragon every time you call out. Um, He doesn't just hear, he comes down. He is a dragon, but he's your dragon. Uh, But we ask, what does that mean? Because, I mean, to state the obvious, things didn't always work out for David, at least in the ways that you or I might hope, or probably he did as well. Um, In fact, his life was filled with heartbreak and hardship. And so what does it mean to say that God was devoted to him and rescued him? Um, David doesn't exactly answer that question in this passage, but what he does do is tell us why he trusts God, uh, even when things are out of control. And so we ask, why is David so confident that God is so devoted to him, uh, even when he feels like he's drowning? Uh, I think there are a few clues that lead us in a certain direction. Uh, And that direction, I think, is back to the Exodus event, uh, where God, he brought his people out of Egypt um, through the Red Sea and made them his own. Uh, What are those clues? I think there's at least three that stick out to me. First is all the language of fire. Smoke, lightning, clouds, and darkness. Um, Most of those same words appear in another passage, Exodus 19 and 20, where God came down to meet Moses at Mount Sinai. You find that same language, and I think that shared language is meant to take us back to the Exodus. Second clue is the language of God rescuing David out of the waters 
and in particular how he kind of parted the waters. Uh, it's there, verse 16. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. I think it's meant to remind us of the exodus where God brought them safely through the sea. Um, third and final clue is a really strange word that David uses. It only appears one other time in the Bible, apart from the kind of counterpart in Psalm 18. Uh, and the word means to draw out. Uh, it is the word Moses. Uh, now, obviously, there's the man called Moses. Uh, but the only other time this word is used is in Exodus 2. We're told that the man, Moses, was given his name because he was drawn out of the water uh, by an Egyptian princess. That's why he was called Moses. And then here in our passage, David uses that same word. God drew me out. Uh, literally, God moses me. Uh, and Moses was, of course, the one who led the Israelites through the sea. Maybe you're sitting here, there and you're like, thank you for that nerd out. <laughs> um, why do I need to know anything about the Exodus? Uh, remember, we're trying to work out how could David be so sure that God was for him, not against him. Uh, and what we're seeing is that, at least in David's mind, um, it was the Exodus that gave him that confidence. Uh, and the reason why is because the Exodus moment was really the great salvation moment of the Old Testament. Uh, that is where God saved his people. That's where he made them his own. And so in moments of doubt, he could look back to the Exodus, even though he wasn't there, and stand confidently, knowing that God had already demonstrated his devotion to his people. Um, it's an imperfect illustration, but I think the Exodus is almost functioning a little bit like marriage vows function in a marriage. Um, see, part of the beauty of marriage vows is that when things aren't going so well, um, the couple can look back to their vows and kind of uh, have the confidence, the security of those promises, for better, for worse. Um, that's kind of how those vows are meant to function. You look back to them for security. And at least for David, the Exodus event was that great moment when God had committed himself to his people. But our moment isn't the Exodus, is it? It's the cross where Jesus laid down his life for us. That is where God has committed himself to us, saved us, made us his own. Um, that is where he demonstrated his devotion to us. Um, and it's, it's how you can be sure that God is far more devoted to you than you'd ever believe. Uh, it's also how Paul can say this in Romans 8. Uh, he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, all things still happen to Christians, but the promise is that all those things God turns to good. Uh, and he goes on, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Uh, Grace City, if God gave up his son for you, how could he ever let you drown? Um, he has committed himself to you. There's so much more that I want to unpack there. Uh, so many things I'd love to explore. Uh, but this is a sermon on 2 Samuel 22, not Romans 8. So we'll keep moving. 
the first radical truth of this passage is that God is actually far more devoted to you than you'd ever believe. He rouses himself like a fearsome dragon whenever you call out to him. Uh, the second truth is that your sins are further from you uh, than you'd ever imagine. Your sins are further from you than you'd ever imagine. Uh, for this, we're going to turn to that second part of David's song. And in this second part, he's going to shift from describing God to describing himself. And it's here that we also start to feel some serious awkwardness. Uh, let me read the verses, see if you can work out the awkwardness I'm talking about. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to, the clean, uh, according to my cleanness in his sight. Um, I wonder, can you feel the awkwardness there? Um, we don't have any trouble understanding what David is saying. Um, the trouble is working out what on earth he could mean when he says that he has clean hands, no guilt, that he is blameless and has kept himself from sin. Uh, and the reason why is because I'm pretty sure most of us can think of some pretty clear examples of when David has sinned, has dirtied his hands, brought blame and guilt on himself. Uh, Bathsheba, Uriah, think of his sons. I mean, let me just contrast verse 23 with something that David says in Psalm 51. He says, all his laws are before me. Psalm 51, my sin is always before me. Um, which is it? Was it God's laws or his sin? Maybe you're even feeling a little offended, angry at what David says after everything he's done. How dare he claim to be righteous, clean? Um, it feels like a total lack of remorse. So what's going on here? How do we make some sense of this? Uh, the first thing to notice is that David probably wrote this psalm sometime earlier in his reign, uh, probably before he had committed his great sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. The uh, reason I say that is because of the heading we're given in verse 1. Uh, we're told that David sung his song, when the Lord delivered him from, all, from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Uh, notice the emphasis is on Saul there. Uh, he was causing problems for David much earlier in his life, well before Bathsheba and Uriah. Which makes me wonder, uh, would he have sung this song a little differently? a little later in his life. But all of that leads us to ask what I think is actually the crucial question. And the question is this, why, why does the author of 2 Samuel choose to include this psalm, which was potentially written earlier in David's life, and why would the author choose to include this particular song at this particular point in the book? See, remember this song, it's not really part of the story of 2 Samuel. Um, the author has chosen to include it as part of the epilogue to help us make sense of the book as a whole. Um, so why would the author do that? The author isn't stupid. Um, the whole point of the last 10 chapters has basically been to highlight how unrighteous, sinful, foolish and unclean David has been. Um, and the whole point of putting this song here in the epilogue 
is actually to make us feel the awkwardness, to feel the offense at David having said these things. And I think the author does it for two reasons, to point us back and to point us forward. Uh, see, part of what's going, I think, going on, I think the author is pointing us back to something that we read in chapter 12. Now, you remember Nathan? He confronted David over his sin. Uh, David responds, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Do you remember what Nathan said next? He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. I wonder if the author chose to include this song here to remind us that even though David did have blood on his hands and that he wasn't blameless, the Lord really had taken away his sin. Think back to Psalm 51. When David prays and he asks God to wash his iniquity, to cleanse him from his sin, how do you think God responded to that prayer? Do you think God responded by saying, oh, maybe? Or, yes, but only after you've started acting like you've changed. Listen to what commentator John Woodhouse says. We, the readers of the books of Samuel, may still remember David's sin and pin it on him. Remarkably, the Lord does not. Well, have a listen to what David says, actually, in a different psalm. Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David's sins were taken away. He couldn't get back to them even if he tried. They were gone. Um, and I wonder if the author of 2 Samuel chose to include this psalm here, uh, this psalm about David's righteousness, to remind us that actually, um, in light of all his failures, it was only ever the grace of God that could take away his sin. It was only ever grace. Um, see, in the sight of God, David was righteous. He was blameless. He was clean. But that had nothing to do with anything David had done, and it had everything to do with what God had done. Um, David did nothing more than take God at his word when he was told that his sin had been taken away. But I also said that the author wants to point us forward. Uh, because uh, the author, he doesn't just want to point us back. The author wants us to long for a king who would truly keep the ways of the Lord, uh, keep himself from sin. One of the big points of this whole book is to show us that even though God, he promised to raise up one of David's offspring to be a king, one of the big points of the book is that David was not that king. Uh, that's why the author spends so long telling us about his failures. Uh, and all of that pushes us forward beyond the book itself to create a longing for the one who would establish God's kingdom in righteousness and blameless. Uh, I think we get a hint of that in the very last verse of this song. This is how it ends. Uh, the Lord gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And the author pushes us forward beyond David to the one who would come after him. Uh, you see, Jesus is the only one who can truly sing this song. Um, before this song is David's and before it's yours or mine, it's the song of Jesus. And so as he walks the streets of Galilee, walks the streets of Jerusalem, 
Um, Only he can sing this song of righteousness and blamelessness. And in response, God the Father sings a word over him. Behold my son with whom I am well pleased. But the radical truth of the gospel is that in Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of you. Have a look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Notice there's two movements there. Uh, First, Jesus becomes sin for us. He takes all our sins, and as he dies on the cross, so does our sin. Um, Do you know what that means? They have been taken away. Even if you wanted to get back to them, you couldn't. Uh, They are further from you than east is from west. And you will keep sinning till the day you die. But they do not belong to you. He took them. That includes the sins that always seem to keep coming back. Um, The new sins, the sins you've forgotten about, and the sins you're most ashamed of. He has taken them. He's taken them all. But the second movement that Paul describes is when we become the righteousness of God. Uh, All of Jesus' righteousness, all of his perfection, his blamelessness is counted to you if your faith is in Jesus, which means that in the eyes of God, these crazy, awkward verses that David sung are now true of you. Not because you did them, but because Jesus did and he gave them to you. Now, the second radical truth in this passage is that your sins are further from you than you'd ever imagine. Uh, The third truth uh, will be much quicker. We're going to see some similar themes is that God is actually doing something far bigger than you'd expect. Uh, For this, we're going to turn to that third, that last section of David's song. And this bit really centers on David uh, crushing and defeating his enemies. And so if God being like a dragon didn't make you uncomfortable, And if David's song of self-righteousness didn't make you uncomfortable, this will. Um, Have a look with me. Verse 38. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely. And they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. And on it goes for another 10 verses. Uh, And so the question is, what on earth do we do with these verses? Because if we read these verses as if they were about us... That starts to get into some tricky places when trying to make sense of this. So either we say that "Mm, Christians, uh, they're actually going to crush all those who oppose them. Uh, That's going to take us somewhere back to like the Crusades in the Middle Ages. We don't want to go there. Or we have to make some metaphorical jumps and say that these enemies are actually just things like stress and anxiety and we're going to crush them. Uh, But that kind of leads to a prosperity gospel that ultimately isn't true for Jesus, the man of sorrows who suffered, who wept. Uh, Can you see the danger of reading ourselves too quickly into this passage? Uh, But more than that, these verses are actually a little bit awkward, even if they're about David. Uh, We we get like a small taste of David's dominance in chapter 8. But the historical reality is that he was only ever the king over a very small kingdom. Very small kingdom in the Middle East for a very brief period of time. Uh, He is a small fish. And so when David says, the nations came cowering before me, it kind of seems a little bit overblown. Um, 
But more than that, think about the story of Samuel. Remember, this is, um, this is the epilogue. And for the last 10 chapters, David hasn't been able to keep his own family together, let, his own, let alone his own kingdom. Um, chapter 20, where the story ends, basically some random called Sheba starts a rebellion to threaten David's entire rule. And so if some random guy can you know, threaten to destroy his entire kingdom, then how impressive really was it? Can you see how by placing this song in the epilogue, the author is again forcing us to confront the realities and actually the failures of David's reign. And once again, the whole point is to push us forward beyond David to his promised descendant, um, who as that's where we've seen, that's where the song ends, to his descendants forever. Um, I think we also get a little taste of it in a second song that David sings, start of chapter 23. We're not going to unpack it all. Just have a look at verses 3 and 4. David sings, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Um, David's reign had a dawn and it also had a dusk. Uh, it started like a cloudless day and it ended with pouring rain. Um, he rose and he fell. But Jesus is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless day. Uh, it brings brightness after the rain. And so just as I close, um, how does Jesus fulfill these verses about crushing enemies, ruling the nations? Um, well, to do that, I want to take you briefly to the one place in the New Testament where David's song is quoted. It's only quoted once. It's in Romans 15.9. Paul says this. I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, uh, the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. It's a slightly funny passage, but the point is that Jesus doesn't rule the nations by bringing a sword, but by becoming a servant. He doesn't bring a word of death, but a word of life. Uh, and he extends his rule through the life-giving gospel, through his mercy. Uh, and did you notice why Jesus does it? He does it so that he might be able to sing with us, to sing a song so that we could sing with him. See, God is more devoted to you than you'd ever believe. But only because God didn't come down. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And your sins are further from you than you'd ever imagine. But only because God didn't treat Jesus according to his righteousness, but our unrighteousness. And Jesus, he's gathering the nations for a song. Not by taking a sword to their heads, but by letting the sword fall upon his head. Would you pray with me before we sing together? Heavenly Father, we sing the praises of your name because you are so faithful to us, uh, even when we are so unfaithful to you. You have washed us. You have made us clean in your sight by the precious blood of your Son. And we take you at your word. Uh, Father, he is our only hope. Uh, and so we praise his name. Amen.